Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome to another episode of Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Abby Ross. I'm Danielle Tate, and today we have a really special guest, Sarah Renberg, who we are very excited to have on here Sarah and I met a couple of years ago um, as she was in the thick of it um, in her journey through recovering from concussion and traumatic brain injury. And Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a little background on who you are? All right. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Sarah Renberg. I'm currently a senior at the University of Michigan in the honors program studying biopsychology, cognition, and neuroscience. Uh, and I also uh, do some concussion research up at Michigan. Uh, I'm the former program development coordinator at the Headway Foundation, but have since moved on into a more of an advisory role to prioritize my studies. Um, and I have threatened to puke on Danielle more than the average person. <laughs> So you kind of already segued, but obviously this is a vestibular-based podcast, Talk Dizzy to Me. What brings you on this show? Uh, well, to put it bluntly, I was shoved headfirst into a wall more than once. Um, I uh, was an ice hockey player in the Junior Women's Hockey League and being recruited to play in college, and that was sort of the dream. And um, I took a couple of bad hits over the years. And it really um, culminated into, uh, in October of 2014, I took what parents describe as one of the, the worst hits they'd ever seen. Um, and, and that sent me down uh, into a tailspin. Um, so a couple of morals to that story, which, which is first and foremost, don't play, continue to play if you suspect that you might've had a concussion because it can create a whole host of problems. Um, and the second is to just uh, value every chance you get to play the game. I'll be honest, I haven't had many other patients uh, have the extent of injuries that you've had from this brutal sport. Um, but you're absolutely right. It can be safe as long as you look out for yourself and you are able to pull yourself out of the game if you feel like you've had some sort of an injury. The one thing that I think is great nowadays is how much more awareness is being brought to concussion and traumatic brain injury. and its role it plays in sports. And I think it's still so important to speak on it because everybody has a different experience and you can hear everything from a very mild experience to a very significant experience. And I would say to put it lightly, yours was very significant um, to say the least at a, even a huge pivotal point in your life and time and um, kind of changing the trajectory of what you had planned for your future. Um, but we're really excited to have you here today because we know that there are a lot of things that you bring to the table of good news and hope for a lot of patients suffering from the same thing, as well as some tips and management strategies and some really good advice for people that might be going through the same thing. So again, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And, and what can I say? I like to be competitive in every aspect of my life. <laughs> To say the least. I mean, it, you almost it was so much to keep you under control in the clinic to keep you from doing too much. You were one of those patients we had to rein in because you were just you were biting at the bit you wanted to get going, which was good um, to a degree. <laughs> so, Sarah, we know you had some vestibular rehab during your recovery. What were your primary symptoms that you and Danny and anyone else on your healthcare team were addressing? Yeah, so um, I guess with the career-ending injury, uh, my vestibular issues were pretty apparent from the get-go. So yeah, there was just an endless vomit. I pretty much started throwing up, and then it it didn't stop. Uh, or it, I was pretty much nauseous all the time for like four to five years. Um, I had, you know, headaches every vision issue in the book. I probably set records at the vision, place of vision therapy. Um, I had a neck injury, uh, which um, I actually had to wear a cervical collar for, I think it was like six or seven weeks. Um, and so when my brain was healing in that initial time span, my brain was healing frozen, uh, which is a bit of a, the reason why um, we, I had a lot of issues later on. Um, I had 
extremely severe autonomic nervous system dysfunction uh, and was later diagnosed with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, uh, nerve inflammation. Uh, pretty, pretty much if you think about it, I likely had it. Things you would never think of either. I mean, I remember one of the uh, issues that we had was you were really trying to get um, running again and get back to getting in shape. And I, you were planning to run a half marathon and you would go blind every time you started running. So that was a little bit of an issue that I don't think I would have ever anticipated with working with a patient. So oh, even the yeah. things you couldn't imagine were happening as well. Uh, yeah, I, for, I forgot about that. I also like <laughs> didn't really have great feel, feeling in my like whole right leg. Um, I had tremors. Yeah, I, I, it was not a great time. Um, and the, the POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome that comes with its whole slew of terrible. Um, but, but we made it here today and I actually did complete the half marathon. It was just like three years later. Uh, I was just going to give an update on that. I saw you post that and I was so excited and so happy when I saw it. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It was, um, I did not think that through, but it was a good <laughs> experience and I, and everyone cheered me on and I actually raised, uh, over $6,000 for the love your brain foundation. That's wow. amazing. That mm -hmm. is amazing. Congratulations yeah. on finishing the half marathon because uh, I haven't done that and I haven't had the SIDS and Tracer symptoms that you have. Thanks. Yeah, it was exactly, it was a couple days after the five year anniversary yeah. and I, um, it was a really meaningful moment for, for me and my family because, uh, you know, at diagnosis, like I couldn't even stand up for more than five minutes without threatening to pass out and relearning to like walk correctly between parallel bars and having that neon like hold belt on you all the time uh, and being in there with like 75, 80 old people, uh, <laughs> but being 16. So it, it certainly was a journey, um, but it just shows that, you know, you can put any, do anything you put your mind to. That's right. Now, also, I mean, you're so well spoken today. I know that this was not always the case, I'm sure. Can you touch on your cognition and how that was impacted? Yeah, so this, I think, is where I struggled the most, also from an emotional sense, because um, like if you break your arm, tear your ACL, the rest of you still works fine. And with a brain injury, that's just not the case. Um, and at the time I was in high school trying to be recruited to play in college, uh, pretty competitive and, and my family strongly values academics. Um, and, and I was a little bit competitive in that too. And, and I genuinely love learning. I've loved learning since I was a kid. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely one of those. I, I actually earned the nickname Webster on one of my earlier hockey teams because I sounded like a dictionary. Um, <laughs> and so, that's a compliment. Yeah. Well, at the time it wasn't, um, <laughs> and, uh, or I didn't take it as such. Um, but, but when I, you know, got hurt all of a sudden I couldn't read something so rudimentary was all of a sudden so challenging. And I remember like sitting in my AP English classroom, <laughs> trying not to throw up, trying not to pass out and just sort of staring at this piece of paper. Like I was supposed to do something. Um, I ended up having, uh, you know, I really owe everything. And the fact that I even graduated high school to my mom, who pretty much dropped everything and like read me my homework and did everything with me and fought the school with tooth and nail um, to get me uh, the, the appropriate accommodations. But uh, so I struggled with memory, um, just immense fatigue, reading and reading comprehension. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty much any, everything. I was also pretty, like I constantly battled with overstimulation. So even if I might be able to do something in a quiet enclosed environment, but when I was in a classroom and there were people moving or something on the board, um, those sorts of things were so distracting that I kind of shut down. It was really hard for me to socialize too, for that reason. At my high school, like a lunch period, everyone's out and about, I was a goner. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's where some of your vestibular systems start to overlap um, with everything else. And I will say you were a little intimidating walking to the office because of how competitive you were with doing your homework. And you had been to vestibular therapy in the past. So you knew all about the Mars and ball. You knew about heart charts. You knew about all of this stuff. And you had this in, like impressive setup at home of doing your home exercise programs and your home therapy. Do you want to touch on that at all? Sure. Um 
Well, I think one of the things, so it, with earlier concussions, or I, I had an earlier concussion um, that took uh, four to five months before I was back on the ice playing at an elite level. Um, but it was very much a linear trajectory. And it was, I would say, a classic PCS case that once I was put in active rehabilitation, you saw a steady trajectory and a return to play. And I played the best hockey of my life in between uh, that injury and then the slightly more catastrophic one. Um, and so particularly with an athlete, what what you know, active rehabilitation and vestibular therapy gives you are the tools to improve. It puts something back into your control. So instead of waiting, instead of, you know, tracking symptoms, and it gives you something to do and something that has a purpose. And by the time that I met you, I had been quite uh, a ways around um, in terms of therapies and uh, practitioners and experiences. And I'd also started to learn a lot of the science associated. And so I knew exactly why I was doing it. And so it was really important to me to build in the opportunities to do that when I was outside of the clinic um, in the same way that, you know, I shot pucks in the driveway or dribbled the soccer ball in the backyard. Um, recreating a vestibular therapy setting within reason is not that hard to do. Um, and so I, I looked at that as an opportunity. I think, you know, regardless of how things turned out in the past, um, you know, six and a half years since I get hurt, I don't think anyone can question my desire to get better. But that's, I don't think that's something every patient can say. Uh, so that's something I take a lot of pride in. Uh, and it's just about putting forth that effort because no one's going to make you better. And I think oftentimes in physical therapy, it would frustrate me to hear other people sort of complaining about things. But then you kind of knew they weren't doing their, their homework. Mm -hmm. Like, well, if they're giving you the tools, you have to at least try. I mean, behavioral studies show that the more integrated something is into your surroundings, the more likely you are to actually do it. That's why you put reminders on the refrigerator, um, or at least I do. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, using that sort of, I mean, in my bedroom, you wake up and you see it every day. That's why even though um, it might be a little cliche. I kind of put up a, a board and it says, um, you know, what did you do today to get better? Um, I did a lot of like rehab tracking so that I could track my progress in more real time than, you know, the ever, every six weeks you do in a, a PT's office. And some might consider it obsessive, but I pretty much used the strategies that allowed me to become a, you know, an excellent athlete that, uh, and, and use those to, to recover. I think you're right in, in vestibular therapy and also just physical therapy in general, you know, it's not our job to, to wave the magic wand and make you better. It's our job to figure out what's going on and give you the necessary tools to get you to a point where you can get yourself better. Mm -hmm. And especially with vestibular therapy, it's an everyday thing. You have to have consistency in order to see results. And you're right. Not everybody has that motivation. Um, a lot of people get discouraged easily and they just kind of hope that coming into the appointments is all they need to do. Um, mm -hmm. But put it, putting in that time, that perseverance and, and really committing to your recovery is super important. Um, and that's definitely something you have done 100%, 110%. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, one of our first conversations, Danny, that we have with our patients is, if you only do the work when you're here, you're not going to get better. The magic truly does happen within your home. And it's more rare that we have a patient or client like you where we have to rein them back. Usually we're we're encouraging them, no, comply to the homework, please. Yeah. So yeah. well, it's it's not really magic. I think that's something you have to appreciate. For most brain injury to a point, it's it's functional. And so you're retraining, even if it has to be, you know, new pathways, that's what you're doing. It's it's habituating your system to a degree uh, so that life becomes tolerable. And I will I will say that if life hadn't have been so like nearly unbearable, I'm not sure if my drive would have been necessarily at the height that it was. I think it was certainly helped by the fact that I just was miserable and did not want to be miserable any longer. Um, and I had a real deep desire to be a normal 20 something uh, and to have a future. Uh, and so 
you know, there, there are all sorts of driving forces that I, that I think can help you find motivation. But I think it's really helpful for patients to really understand the why in their actions. Because, you know, staring at a wall and shaking your head seems ridiculous. It seems ridiculous <laughs> while you're doing it. Uh, but there's a lot going on there. And so I think that's something that perhaps clinicians can take away and that taking the time and yeah, it will take you a minute to actually explain to the level that a lay person can understand really makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Because when you think of all the, the annoying things that you have to do in a day, if you don't understand why you're doing them, then you probably wouldn't do them. Um, and so I think that's something to recognize, even if it will take you time and re- it requires a little bit of added effort, I, I think you'll see a lot or more or increased, increased patient compliance. Yeah, absolutely right. And that education is huge, 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 huge. And we've we've talked about that in a couple of our episodes that take the time to both listen to your patient, but also educate your patient because you're absolutely right. If you don't know why you're doing it, it's not going to make any sense. It does sound like magic, right? Um, you know, if we treat something like beef and BV or we tell someone to shake their head at a wall, they go, what the hell is this doing? Um, and it's not the most uh, enticing or very um, exciting exercise to do. So if they at least know why they're doing it, you're definitely more likely to get them to be compliant and to work on their stuff at home. And, you know, not to mention, and we've touched on this in prior episodes, most people don't know they even have a vestibular system until something goes wrong, until symptoms present. So even going more basic, not just why you're doing this exercise, but what at the bare bones is your vestibular system and how is it impacting your everyday life, both pre and post vestibular dysfunction. So that's a really good point. Now you have some really great tips and strategies that we've discussed earlier. Um, Let's start talking about some symptom management strategies. What really got you through, especially when your symptoms were so intense, they were nearly unbearable, or maybe they were unbearable? Um, A couple of things. So I don't know if it was the impact of the brain injury or, um, you know, my perhaps unhealthy at times, competitive fire, or um, my not being able to separate myself from my peers who were going through the like college process. But especially early on, there was like no disconnect between what I actually could do and what I should be doing. Um, And which, so because of that, like when I went back to school, I went back to school and even if it was only for an hour or two every day, I was still doing that um, and trying to do the work. And like, I sometimes question in in retrospect whether or not it would have behooved me to give myself more time initially to really lay a foundation of recovery, unearth some of the things that were underlying and and then, you know, jump back into things. Uh, So I'll start there. But then because I was doing this um, and going into school and going into rehab, I mean, honestly, just tolerating rehab was tough. Like I had a bucket with my name on it to vomit in at the first couple of establishments um, <laughs> because that's just where we were. Uh, and so it, I basically, I didn't ever think that I wasn't gonna stop living life. I honestly thought I'd still be playing division one college hockey. Um, and because of that, you needed a way to learn how to do life. And then as you move forward and you're not getting better, life carries on and you need to you know, be a part of that um, or else you're miserable. And the one thing that was drilled into my head repeatedly is if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Um, and with the orthostatic intolerance, uh, you know, forcing myself to exercise, forcing myself to get out of bed every day, that was a huge and daunting task, but it needed to be done. So there was a necessary component of symptom management. Um, And I would say over six and a half years, you get really good at it. Uh, (laughs) So there's certainly trial and error. I did not nail it right off the bat. Um, But what I will say is that um, particularly with vestibular disorders, and you can correct me if you're wrong, if I'm wrong, because I'm not a um, clinician, but like nausea is a huge component. Dizziness is a huge component. Um, and those are highly uncomfortable and distracting. I mean, you try and take an AP Euro his, European history test while you're dizzy and nauseous, and you'll probably do worse than if you were feeling fine. <laughs> um, and so uh, 
the biggest savior to me in in high school and early college was ginger gum. It's like over the counter. You can get it at CVS and Walgreens. I'm pretty sure it's made for chemotherapy patients and pregnant women, but I I was like chewing a pack a day. I was an addict. Um, <laughs> and that stuff tastes terrible, but it really works. Um, and so having these sorts of plants, another thing that was really important to me was early into my recovery, um, I was told or recommended to go see uh, uh, a mental health professional because you know, I just had my like whole world ripped away from me and all of a sudden my brain didn't work. There's a lot going on there. Um, and one of the things that, uh, and the first match wasn't a great one, but the second one was really great because she was like, your life sucks. We know why. Uh, and so we're gonna give you some strategies to sort of mitigate that, um, things that are within your control. So one of those things that she told me was to like suck on a peppermint candy whenever you were feeling overwhelmed and your ability to like focus on the taste and use mindfulness and deep breathing. She was the first person to introduce um, like the belly breath into my life. That really gave me a way to manage things. Um, and then I later, um, thanks to the Love Your Brain Foundation, which is a fantastic organization, uh, they really introduced mindfulness and meditation into my life, which gave me a way to in the moment find calm and to sort of be aware of the nausea but not let it overwhelm me um because one of the things that happened was when i would get nauseous or if i would throw up like no one wants to be a weird pukey kid or a weird fainty kid in high school that's about the worst thing you can do um and then in college college actually puking is normalized because of drinking culture <laughs> but uh, but it was really it was really bad in high school um and so once I started feeling badly, I would get terrified that I was going to like throw up in the middle of class because again, there's nothing more mortifying than that. Um, and you know, I'm a teenage girl, I've got things to worry about. <laughs> um, and so um, like meditation and mindfulness and being able to breathe were really useful strategies for me. Um, and being able to like keep the nausea as nausea and not let it turn into panic. Because particularly, especially like when the world is swimming around you and you're like holding onto the walls, so you don't fall over in the middle of the um, high school hallways because high school hallways are not only filled with people, they are lined with lockers. It is literally the worst type of environment for someone with a vestibular disorder. Um, but having that sort of like feeling grounded. So oftentimes what I would do um, is like, if you put your back to the wall and just like lean into something. So I, I knew that um, like my left side felt better than my right side in terms of like proprioceptive ability. So if you like, like if I leaned with my left side against the locker, take a couple of deep breaths, able to ground yourself. Um, Cause with vestibular issues in general, like it's a lack of knowing where you are in space. So being able to find a way to find where you are in space, if that makes sense, is really helpful. Um, befriending the nurse, also really helpful. Uh, those are some of my tips. Um, it really sort of, it's a trial and error process and depending what works for you. But I think an ability to breathe and um, manage sort of the nausea and the environment as best you can is really important. That was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no, but those, I mean, those are, that's even just the tip of the iceberg. I know that managing symptoms is going to be different from person to person. Um, and it's just really important to have something, um, something in your toolbox to be able to utilize. So anybody struggling might take at least one, two, three of those tips and be able to put them to really good use. But you're right. Everything you said is dead on and things that we do with our patients, especially the mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, I can't believe how many times I've recommended the Insight Timer app or um, a couple of the other different uh, 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 mindfulness apps and grounding practices and even body mapping is a new one that I've been doing more with patients just so that they have a better um, awareness of their body and where they are when they're lying on the table, if I'm working on their neck or something like that. So those are, I mean, amazing, amazing tips to give. And, you know, you've also mentioned about putting yourself and your health first. You know, the world is busy and we have a lot of different things in our lives, but um, why don't you kind of expand a little bit about, you know, what you had to do to, do, to take that step to put that your health first, put it up on a pedestal? Yeah. So I think it comes down to when you're when you're trying to recover from a brain injury, um, you need to create a foundation that um, allows for healing. And that's if you think about it, even just on a metabolic level, you have to have the right nutrients, the right energy. Um, when you think about how, uh, I mean, the science shows that you know, brains need sleep. 
uh, for starters, and we live in a sleep deprived and dark deprived society. So prioritizing good sleep, good nutrition, um, you know, knowing when like enough is enough in terms of socializing. I mean, again, so I was um, 16, I think when I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 16 when I got hurt um, and I'm 22, almost 23 now. And so when you are this young, one, everyone is healthy and just anticipates being healthy forever and people think they're invincible. Um, and two, there's a lot of social pressure to go out and do stuff, usually stupid stuff, um, and especially in college. Um, and, and so you have to be willing to, you know, say no to pizza at midnight and, um, you know, eat, eat your vegetables, even though your mom's not there in college to tell you and, and things like that. Um, and the sleep is a huge thing. So I have, you know, um, after freshman year, which is when I met Danielle, uh, I had had a really rough go of, of my winter term. I ended up getting like jaundice, had cranial nerve inflammation, and a couple other bad things. And I had not felt good the entire year. It was pretty much just holding on. And that's because I was pushing too hard. And, and I was so desperate, I think, to fit in that I didn't prioritize my health in every capacity. Um, and then since then, I've learned that, you know, going to bed at 10 makes me functional and allows me to succeed and allows me to be present with my friends during the daytime. And, um, you know, uh, and so that's, that's something that I, it took me a while to learn, uh, but I think is really important because again, if you're, you're asking your brain to do a lot of work and to regain function and rebuild function, and you, so you need to give it the proper fuel and the proper environment. I mean, think about a plant, like nothing's gonna grow if you put it in a bunch of rocks and put it in a Michigan winter, like that's not gonna work. And so you, you need to um, sort of lay, again, lay the foundation for healing uh, and, and be willing to prioritize that because again, you're not going to get better without it. And so I think that it's a matter of just like putting it up on that pedestal. And I'm not saying never have fun. Like, trust me, I have fun. And when I do have fun, it's deliberate and intentional. And I'm very, um, it's a meaningful moment for me. And so it's just a matter of balancing, but making sure that if you, you know, go out one night that you really make sure that you have a day where you can rest and recover. Um, and so that, that way you can sort of keep the balance. Now, with the social pressures and the school pressures and the family pressures, what would you say about the support that you received? Was it adequate and helpful? Did friends accept, no, I'm not getting pizza at midnight? Talk to us about that. So there are a couple of different things. Um, first, with my family, I think like I've grown with the injury they have as well. And I think that's important to recognize both in our understanding of what it meant and how I was going to react to it, but, and, and how they should best support me. I think there was a learning curve. Um, I'll say my, my brother has been my rock through the whole thing. He's my first phone call with any problem. It's been that way for a long time now. Um, he's amazing. And uh, he goes to, he went to Michigan for college too. And I don't think my parents would have been nearly as comfortable with me going away if he wasn't there. Um, and my sister also, she's younger than me, but she drives me around because I was still don't have a driver's license. It's a whole nother thing. Um, my parents, I think my mom was really, um, you know, took me to all the doctor's appointments um, and everything. And, and my dad worked really hard to ensure that I had access to every possible lane of care. I will say that I strained my parental relationships because um, <laughs> put it bluntly, I was an asshole to be around for a little bit, I was in a lot of pain, and I wasn't very good at communicating. And um, I, yeah, I was not a, a good person. Um, and I don't know how much is a function of like, pain versus a function of like the injury itself and, and any sort of personality changes that, that ensued. Um, but I also think that there were some elements of my parents kind of wanting the old me back before that could appear. Um, but again, it's something that you grow with. And I think that we're a really close knit family to begin with, and even more so now. Um, with my friends, it was interesting because when I got hurt, I was 16, which means when I got hurt, they were 16. Um, and so I think that's a really challenging thing to ask any teenager to handle well. Um, 
and I know this now, I wasn't as keenly aware of it then. Um, in ter- like I, my teammates, I didn't feel, um, I felt a little bit abandoned at the time. Um, and with my school friends, so like I would miss weeks of school at a time for various reasons, or I'd only be there for a day or two. And I would like show back up at school and like the kids sitting in front of me in world history class would like turn around and be like, Hey, do you have the homework from last night? And I'd be like, I haven't been here for six weeks. Like, and I, like no one noticed. Um, but I think something that I've come to understand is that, especially when you're a teenager, you just have so much going on and, and I was not the center of anyone's world. Um, and so I think I, I understand that now and the couple of friends and there were only a handful because once you disappear, like it takes a lot for people out of sight, out of mind. Um, like we're very close and I think those will be friends I carry with me for a long time. And then with college, people got a whole nother side of it because they were like, they were living with me too. And I would say I have a very close knit of friends in college who I told pretty early on um, because there were a bunch of things that I do that were just going to be weird and they would figure out something was strange with me sooner or later Um, (laughs) between like, I don't know, the fact that I carry a pharmacy in my backpack or uh, (laughs) like, um, just things that I do. Um, and so they were super accepting and really blew me away based because I hadn't had such a positive experience with high school. Um, and like my friends organized carpools to like drive me to doctor's appointments. And, um, you know, when I got sick, they would like bring me peanut butter sandwiches from the dining hall because I couldn't go down there and, and stuff like that. So I really had help. And I'm also really grateful to the academic support I've gotten at Michigan. Um, my academic advisor, like I, I would have dropped out after one semester if I hadn't have uh, gotten to know him really well. And so um, I think it's a matter of telling the right people and, and vulnerability is often met with vulnerability. So I think that played a role. And then also recognizing like the relative maturity of your counterparts. So I, do I get chided sometimes for being a loser that goes to bed at 10? Yeah. but do they recognize how special it is when I go out like that, you know, one time a month? Yeah. And they make a big deal and we always have a blast. So I think I have a pretty good balance. Um, and I, I wouldn't change anything about my friends. I feel like it's, it had to, it had to t- take some time in order to get to the point where you're at going through your symptoms for six years now. Um, there had to have been some struggles in the beginning, but how did you keep that um, drive? How did you keep that that um, persistence to continue working on your care and driving towards feeling better? Well, hmm. I think that there have been many, 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 many low points. Uh, and like the my friends, some of whom I referenced, like, and my brother, like, they know who they are, like, they get the late night texts or like the, um, you know, the, yeah, I don't know if I can do this anymore type of uh, moments. And, and just in a like frustration way. Um, and I think what it comes down to is an innate belief that it can be better. Um, I think the fact that, um, yeah, I started with an amazing clinician, Dr. Nate Kaiser in, in Michigan. Um, he's one of the best things to come out of my attending Michigan. Um, he, you know, met me sophomore year of college and we were able to make just absolutely incredible improvement with my like autonomic nervous system and um, you know my the pairing of my ocular motor system and my vestibular system and my neck and everything like to actually integrate them really well and things like that. So I was making marked strides and, and we were you know four, five and now six years out. And that is really indicative of the brain's ability to be plastic and to heal. Um, and so I, I think there is a line between being extraordinarily grateful for the fact that I can walk around my block. And in fact, I ran like a couple miles today, like it was no big deal. Um, cause I, you know, I exercise every day and, and like, I, I'm the same person that, you know, struggled to make it around the corner, uh, you know, a couple years ago. So I think you can have immense gratitude without having satisfaction about where you are now. That was something I really actually recently reflected on with the new year because with COVID things have kind of been at a standstill and I haven't been, I haven't, I mean, I've been doing like the things that I do to feel good every day, um, but I haven't necessarily been been seeking out ways to feel better. Mm-hmm. But when push comes to shove, I do not match the typical um, 22 year old for 
for energy and stamina. Um, I still don't have a driver's license, for instance. And so you really have to ask yourself, you know, what's missing? What can you do? And and so I think that, again, it's not that I'm not grateful for the incredible progress. I wasn't guaranteed, but I think that um, you just have to to never be satisfied. Yeah. I mean, you're such an inspiration. I just love listening to you talk. All these questions and answers, they're so good. Um, you know, one of the things that you had mentioned in prior conversation is recognizing the small wins or the victory of the day. And how does that impact your ability to stay motivated, driven, hopeful, inspired? Oh, yeah. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. That, I, I knew uh, that question teed that up. Man, um, I see it now. That's like my thing. Uh, okay, <laughs> so a couple of different things. Um, <clears throat> the first thing is when people, so when people tell me that they struggle to maintain a positive outlook, one of my first go-tos is to say that I bet you can find one good thing about today. And that can be anything from, you know, today I, I ran a 5K today and it was a beautiful, it was like 50 degrees and we're in, January now. So that's absurd. Uh, and it was just an absolutely great experience. I had really good tunes. My sister like redid my running playlist and they're amazing. I just had a great run. That's a great victory for today. That's a good thing from today. But it can also be as simple as like I opened the jar of peanut butter and no one had touched it yet. So it was really smooth on top. And you just like sit there for a moment. And, um, you know, pre-COVID, I lived in a house with seven college kids. So you rarely got peanut butter that wasn't touched. And so you can really appreciate that moment. And that's something completely external. Um, so I think I, I challenge people to find a victory in every day. And I also would say that celebrating the small wins was something I had to really learn. Uh, the example I like to talk about is when I first passed my walking evaluation, which was congratulations, we can, you can walk without being held onto in the PT room. Um, got rid of my neon band. I was all of a sudden a free woman. Uh, and <laughs> it was really exciting stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, so I was what, like 17, 16, 17, and um, was previously an elite ice hockey player who, you know, could skate. And all of a sudden, we were celebrating walking and walking correctly. I, I could always walk. It was just like the walking correctly part. Um, and with really good, trustworthy balance. Um, <laughs> And so, like, I could choose to be absolutely just devastated by this and be like, wow, this sucks. We're now celebrating walking. That's pathetic. Or I could be like, yay, go walking. And so regardless of your circumstances, you have this choice in, in choosing how to react to a situation. And because regardless, I was in the exact same spot. So I chose the celebratory version because it seemed like a lot more fun. Um, and so that's sort of how I've, I've taken things. And it's something that I wasn't necessarily prone to. I think I tried to downplay things like, like as a, a young kid in soccer, I was always taught to act like you've been there before and to never celebrate a goal. So like I was never a kid to like run around the field. And in fact, my hockey coach once he was like, you scored, why aren't you celebrating? You never score because I, I really, I started playing defense and it just, I was a low goal scorer. So maybe not so good as hockey as I would have thought. Um, He's like, why aren't you you celebrating? And so it wasn't something that came naturally to me, but now I really embrace. And um, my uh, freshman year roommate, one of my best friends at school, got into Yale today uh, for grad school. And I was like, we are celebrating. This is amazing. And so that's a huge victory. That's not a small victory. But I think life presents you opportunities to celebrate, and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't pass those by. Congratulations to your friend for one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too, you know, outside of a vestibular podcast, I mean, that's great life advice right there. Celebrate the small wins, find a victory and something good in every day. I'll tell you my good for today is having this interview. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah. but, um, you know, as we, as we think about recovery too, yes, there are some crazy exercises that we prescribe. And I'm sure Danny came up with some really creative things for you to do in your program with her. But also, life is one big vestibular exercise, right? Yes. Pretty much. So talk to us a little bit about how you embraced and implemented different life activities that you enjoy to also help in your recovery. 
So this was not my idea in the first place, but it was something that embraced it. I don't remember who was the first clinician to tell me about this concept, but they were basically like, you can stare at this, you know, X on the wall forever. Um, and, you know, we can put a busy background up there and ask you to stand on one leg and, you know, do all the, all your little tricks. Um, but it's not going to emulate life. Um, because when, again, you're a young person, you've got your whole life ahead of you. And, um, you know, I wanted to be able to ride in the car and uh, go to the grocery store and, and go to the mall with my friends and go to prom. That was like one thing I really was working forward, uh, working towards and looking forward to combine those just now. Um, <laughs> then, uh, and so I began to see, you know, the world as opportunities to train the vestibular system. And I found that if it was something that I enjoyed doing, it was, I would tolerate it for longer. Uh, so huge bias there. Uh, and <laughs> so, what I ended up doing was, um, well, so I have a history of loving grocery shopping and that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> um, but, I, <laughs> but that became like one of the things that I did. Um, and so I would go with my mom and sometimes I'd only be in the store for a few minutes. Sometimes I'd have to leave. And other times I would do the whole shopping spree and she would give me tasks. And it was like this combination of, you know, cognitive retraining. There is nothing more, um, sinister for someone with a vestibular disorder than a grocery store because you've got <laughs> aisles you have fluorescent lights you have people moving down the aisles then you have aisles lined with you know every single label you can think of and so um i was really into cooking uh and and food and i still am and so um that was just like a fun way for me to to really mess with it and and next to the grocery store my english classroom was fine and so again it was like this comparative system and that once you were sort of putting yourself in these real world situations you it was habituating your system to not necessarily be comfortable in them because i was not comfortable but i could tolerate it and breathe through it and to me going to the grocery store and taking a lot of deep breaths was way more fun than being tortured by danielle sorry <laughs> also like that time uh, you had to go down to a, par a certain parade after a certain oh, hockey yeah, team oh, yeah, won yeah. Oh, I, the stanley I, cup i remember how did i forget about that yeah so i'm a big hockey fan obviously so going to the caps game um and there's a way to control the environment so again i was a young person and i would want to do fun things and and there was a long time where I did not do anything fun. Uh, but then I started, you know, building up a tolerance to things. And and so, um, you know, I would like get an aisle seat. So that way you were clear on one side um, and you would sit like I always was in my my dad would splurge the big dollars and go like lower bowl because that way I would have to see less. Um, also, my brother benefited because he got the to go to. <laughs> um or uh my dad's work also as a suite and so then you're actually insulated from the game but you still get to see it um you know with concerts uh my first concert back from no fun ever um <laughs> was i made sure it was outside it was like a country music concert it was like 20 dollars a ticket with my really good friend ariel who was well trained in the ways of sarah and knew <laughs> that at 10 50 we were booking it out of there and um, she was really well prepared and supportive. Um, and so, but it was, I did an outdoor concert because the noise would escape. We were on the lawn. So that way there was tons of fresh air and you were like far away from a lot of everything. And, you know, it was a good way to sort of balance the desire to have fun, to have an experience, but then also managing your symptoms. Um, and then over time you build up and, um, you know, I went to a Michigan game in the big house and I can't say it was totally enjoyable for me, not only because Michigan football is so questionable these days, but <laughs> because it is really the absolute worst environment. That is, okay, I stand corrected. The grocery store is like a cakewalk compared to the big house. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was important to me to experience those things. And so, um, you know, the first game ever, I was not doing so hot after one quarter and my friend who it was his first ball game of his first football game of his Michigan career too, but he walked me home cause he didn't want me to walk alone. And, and that was um, just uh, a good example of not only a good friend, but um, of, an, uh, of an example of a terrible vestibular experience. Um, 
but it was also like you force yourself to do these things because it ultimately builds up a tolerance. And yeah, the the caps parade. I was gonna miss that for the world. <laughs> um, to our listeners, there is such thing called graded exposure, and that's really what we encourage as therapists. Maybe not zero to a hundred, but zero, ten, twenty, thirty, and yeah. so forth. But side note. I don't know if you had this show around when you were younger, because we're both a bit older than you, but you will love that this show is coming back around. It's called Supermarket Sweep, and you should sign up. <laughs> okay, I I will. Um, in fact, I was <laughs> just discussing, like, Friday afternoons, my house of the, like, my housemates would always go to grocery stores uh, to get our food for the week. And, and, you know, we're college kids. We have to eat, um, all the time really. And, um, that was like the thing I looked forward to throughout the whole week, Friday afternoon grocery shopping with your friends. And <laughs> it was just the greatest thing ever. Um, yeah, that's exposing myself as such a nerd, but it's so true. It's my number one missed thing about the pandemic. You can't just like leisurely stroll through the grocery store and, and, and then go visit like four of them because you want certain things from each one. Um, yeah, so that's how I spend my Fridays. <laughs> Supermarket sweep, look it up. All right, and I will. When it comes to sporting events, you made some really good points that I actually hadn't thought of before. But another tip that I tell people who want to enjoy some sort of live event like that, you know, Hopefully they come back one of these days. But when it comes to position of your seat, although it's not most desirable to be at the end, if you're at the end of a football or hockey or whatever stadium or arena, you're not moving your head so much side to side to track the puck or the football or the basketball. It's more in front of you. You're able to see. So that's another little tip or trick for anyone out there who is trying to get back into the swing of things in that realm, sporting events, live live events in general. Yeah, and also to move, because um, even if you're like, a, that's why aisle seats are really key because um, like you don't want to sit down for too long because uh, you get like stiff or I get stiff. That's definitely not normal, but it happens to me. Uh, so so uh, being, being able to sort of move, even though you're that jerk that like keeps making people stand up. Um, <laughs> Yeah, especially at a sporting event. Obviously, if you're going to like theater, yeah, that's probably not a good move. But um, just sort of being able to do that and sort of embracing your weirdness. I think it took me a very long time to own it. Um, I was really embarrassed and I tried to hide it, especially when I went to college. I had this like weird thing where I thought that I would just magically move eight hours away and I would be cured and everything would be fine. Um, it was a delusion. Uh, and so to just sort of embrace that you have to do certain things to feel good and know that that's like important for you. Um, and real pe real friends will stick through whatever weirdness they you throw their way. There was something you mentioned um, you had found <clears throat> earlier that actually kind of really resonated with me was that you had to work really hard to make life tolerable again. You know, it wasn't um, getting back to your old self. It wasn't getting back to being completely normal. It was finding a way to make life tolerable, to find the new normal. And I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of people really need to take into consideration when they're reflecting on their own path to recovery. Because um, something even as um, insignificant uh, or something as serious, they're going to, you're probably not going to have a 100% recovery outcome. Um, the fact that you might need to make some adjustments to life in order to do the things that you want to do is important. The fact that you are able to go to a football game and go to the Caps parade and do all those things while a little uncomfortable to say it, to put it lightly, um, you still got to go. You still got to be there for those um, uh, times in your life. And that's important to look back on and to enjoy, um, but also taking things into moderation. You know, you do your one night out a month instead of going out, you know, four nights a week with your friends, like you probably want to, um, you know, having that realization of what your realistic goals are, I think is important for your recovery and, and kind of tracking your progress because you can focus on the small wins at that point. You know, somebody who's not focusing on the small wins might look at um, being symptomatic at a, at a game and go, that was terrible. I felt horrible, but they don't focus on the fact that they were there. And they got to be there for half the game or be there with their friends for part of the time. So I think that you've embraced that really well of finding a way to be happy with what you're able to do at this point in time while still pushing forward. Yeah, I think um, there's something 
to be said for, uh, I don't, again, I don't know who was the first person to tell me and I absolutely rejected it for the first like six months after hearing it, but um, the need to grieve your former self and that um, like, we're probably working with Sarah three or 4.0 by now, Um, (laughs) but uh, hopefully each time with improvements. uh, But yeah, you, you can't ever go back um, and even if you regain all physical abilities, just having been through the experience, y- you change fundamentally, I think. And so even if it's just appreciating things for a new time, uh, for uh, like for the first time, like going to a grocery store is so special for me because it was something I actually practiced. And it's the same thing with school. Like I have tried my best and anyone listening to this who really knows me will definitely hold me accountable um, <laughs> to, to never complain about like a late night in the library or like class in general. Um, I would say with Zoom U, it's been challenging to, to really step to keep this, but because like college for me was not guaranteed and I really had to work hard. And like, I remember practicing like reading like ACT prep books and like doing calculus at my kitchen table in like the time I took between high school and college. And then like, I'd walk a half mile, like around this loop and then come back and like try and read again, because that would simulate going to class and things like that. And like, I actually trained to go to school. And so I I try not to take that for granted um, and sort of being in touch with like who you were um, and sort of carrying with you the good parts, but hopefully improving through personal experience along the way. I think that's really important to to sort of keep in mind because I think, and it'll take you a long time. Like I think it probably took a year and a half before I was ready to let go of the fact that, um, yeah, I wasn't gonna be the athlete anymore. Um, but one thing that I would like to share that's been really exciting for me, and you might even find interesting from a vestibular therapy perspective, is uh, over the last at the last summer or the summer before last summer, the summer of uh, 2019, the pre-pandemic summer um, was uh, I got into at the recommendation of Dr. Kaiser in Michigan rock climbing because it's proprioceptively demanding, it's cognitively demanding, it's safe in that um, you know you're strapped up, you're not really gonna fall. Like it's actually one of the safer things I've done, even though it sounds counterintuitive because it's rock climbing, indoor rock climbing, I should say. Um, but it's challenging. It is incredibly strenuous, and you're limited by your grip. So the first thing that's gonna fail is your hands, which allows you to build up slowly. Then it also works all of your posture muscles. It's an incredible core workout, and it's the first time that I have felt like saliently athletic and it was awesome. And the community is there and people cheer you on and you go. And so um, that's something that I did up until the pandemic and really grew with and and greatly enjoyed as this alternate activity that was really beneficial to me from a therapeutic perspective, but also really got me back in touch with with being that athlete Um, and then starting to get back in the gym again and and finding, you know, what makes me happy. Cause that's really like, I, I just love games um, and, and love sports and, and love fitness. Uh, and so that was really important. And I think knowing what's important to you, you usually don't have to say goodbye to it. You just have to look for it in a different light. And I think that's also something really important to take away. Yeah, that's so good. So good. You are such an incredible woman and I've really enjoyed hearing your story, hearing your tips, hearing your motivation for anyone out there listening. Can you leave us with some more information about a few things you touched on earlier, Headway Foundation and the Love Your Brain Mindset program? Yeah, um, so I guess first, if, if you really <clears throat> if you really like my tips, um, I do have my own podcast, it's called Had a Student, and it's while it's targeted at college kids, um, Danny has decided that it is useful for everyone, and, and I do think so as well, um, and it's got tips. Uh, I, I interview guests and also interject my own, uh, I'll put air quotes around wisdom. Um, 
I'll, I'll endorse it. It is a fantastic show. Again, it doesn't have to be just applicable to students. You can take a lot of what the tips that you've put out there. I've been using a lot of your tips, actually, from some of your episodes. I uh, especially loved your first episode right off the bat with Dr. Nate Kaiser. And I think you kind of motivated anybody who listened to that episode to get into rock climbing. Because um, listen, listening to the two of you talk about it, I was like, well, I, I could do that. Like, as soon as everything starts opening up, I'm going to jump in. But you yeah. should absolutely listen to How to Student because it is applicable across the board. And I do highly recommend your podcast. It's phenomenal and produced well in uh, levels above ours of what we put together here. So make sure you go to get on there and, and listen to that. Thank you. It's also my honors capstone project for the University of Michigan. So at the very least downloaded so that I can have more people for when I presented to the committee. Um, so Headway Foundation is a fantastic nonprofit organization, which was founded by athletes who had uh, career altering or career ending concussions. And uh, we function uh, off of three pillars, awareness, aid, and advocacy. We offer a peer support network, uh, an annual concussion awareness event, which uh, last year had over 4,000 student athletes involved across high school, youth, and college teams. Um, and we have, I personally designed the educational curriculum uh, and we have a great academic or uh, medical advisory team. And while I've had to take a step back while I focus on my studies and some other goals and, and endeavors, uh, the the team over there have done a great job carrying forth. And um, if you've had a concussion, uh, definitely check them out. And one of the reasons why I wanted to help start Headway was because my injury would have, like I'd probably be fine right now and would have been fine a couple way long time ago if I hadn't continued to play uh, with a suspected injury. Um, and so it's, you know, part of Headway's mission is to ensure that doesn't happen for the next generation of athletes. And then the Love Your Brain Foundation is an absolutely incredible organization. Um, I really think they saved my life and I definitely wouldn't sound so positive if I hadn't come across them. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. And they are based out of Vermont, started by former Olympic snowboarder Kevin Pierce and his brother Adam. Kevin had a um, near fatal uh, snowboarding crash uh, while training for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. And they offer retreat programs and yoga and mindfulness training for people who've had traumatic brain injury. And also uh, they do programming for their caregivers. I'm currently uh, one of the facilitators or co-facilitators for their mindset program, which was their reaction to the current pandemic situation. It's a completely free six week mindset training course um, where you get to interact with other people affected by traumatic brain injury, learn yoga and meditation. Um, and it's all remote via Zoom, which hopefully everyone is now too familiar with. <laughs> so yeah, that's, and I guess if you wanna just follow me as me, uh, I'm like on social media as SREN20. SREN, R-E-N 20. Yep, on Instagram. Sounds uh, good. We'll be sure to link all of that information in our show notes too. So we'll include the websites and some of the things that we touched on. Sarah, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your time and all of the wisdom you had to bestow on us. Oh, this was fun. So thank you uh, for having me. And um, I think many people would find it hard to believe I had wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you did amazing. And like I said, the knowledge that you shared can be extrapolated beyond just vestibular dysfunction. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you to everyone for listening. Make sure you download How to Student. So Sarah, when she presents, it, like the amazing woman she is. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, this, this was a blast. Thank you all. See you next week. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. 
Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.